Hey, church family. So good to see each of you this morning or whenever it is that you're watching. I'm so glad that you've joined us to worship together and praise God together and hopefully grow in our relationships with each other and, and ultimately, uh, most importantly, with him this morning or today or whenever, like I said, it is that you're watching this. But we are glad nonetheless that you have, have joined us. And just a reminder, as I've reminded you every week, we are meeting together uh, in person. Right now we are back in the church building and uh, trying to stay as, as safe and, and, and healthy as we can and certainly trying to take measures and, and steps to be able to provide a safe atmosphere and a healthy atmosphere for everyone. So uh, hopefully you'll come back and join us if you haven't done so already. Uh, but I also understand that not everybody's quite comfortable with that yet and so we, we understand that. I want you to know we still love you and care about you and so glad that you have chosen to be a part of us and worship together with us this morning. Just also another side note, uh, just a reminder that next week is uh, fall back with our time, so make sure that you adjust your clocks accordingly uh, so that you either, if you're watching online, are going to join us in person so that you get uh, on time. So next week, change our clocks back on, on uh, Saturday night, so hopefully you remember that. I know I usually forget, but uh, at any rate, I heard a story about a young family that was sitting in church one Sunday. And as the preacher was preaching, the dad looked down to see his little three-year-old daughter coloring and drawing on the pew in, in front of them. And so quietly but sternly, the father disapprovingly told his young daughter, honey, don't do that. You, you need to stop doing that. God doesn't want us to draw and color on his pews. And without skipping a beat, his young daughter turned her face heavenward and said, God, can I color on your pew? Okay, thanks. And then she turned to her dad and said, God said it was okay. <laughs> well, there is, aside from maybe that story, there is tremendous power in prayer. It's one of the greatest gifts and privileges that we have, specifically as Christians. Of course, as evidenced by that story I just told you, it is possible to misuse prayer and in fact, it happens uh, quite a bit. And yet the irony is that the greatest misuse of prayer is actually the lack of use of prayer. So we've been journeying through the book of James for the last several weeks and examining what it looks like to have a faith that works. What does it mean to have a faith that works in the real world? And today our journey through James brings us to perhaps the foundational characteristic of a faith that works, and that is prayer. I simply put, a faith that works, praise. Now you might think, well, of course, prayer is part of a faith that works. Every Christian knows that prayer is central to our faith, but here's the reality. As Christians, we affirm prayer. We promote prayer. We advocate for prayer. If someone tries to take the privilege of prayer away, we defend prayer. Prayer. We, we do all of those things oftentimes more than we actually pray. We, we love to love prayer more than if we're dishonest, more than what we actually love to pray. But there is no equation. I'm a big math guy. There is no equation for a faith that works, that subtracts prayer. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week in James chapter 5, nearing the end of our series on James. And we're going to pick up in verse 13 and, and listen to what James has to say about prayer. Here's what James writes. 
He says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So a simple question to kind of get started off. When is a good time to pray? James would say yes, right? There, there, there's no bad time to pray. Every time is a good time to pray. When you're happy, when you're sad, when you're sick, when you are well, when you are in need, when you have all that you need, pray. As you've heard me say oftentimes before, and probably I'm not the only one who says this, but prayer is not our last resort. Prayer is our first response, or at least it ought to be our first response. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter four. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Don't worry about anything. But in every situation, how many situations? Every situation. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Paul says, pray about everything. You, you tell God what you need. You thank him for what you have and all that he's done and everywhere in between. How many situations? Every situation. You pray about Everything, And that's basically what James is telling us. James says that we should lay every moment, every emotion, every circumstance of our lives before the Lord. And here's why this is so important. Here's why prayer is so foundational to a faith that works. Because the big battle from the very beginning and still today, the big battle has always been about self-autonomy and self-reliance. Hey, just think back to the very beginning. Remember what the tempter told the first woman and the first man, Adam and Eve. He said to them, you can be like God. In other words, you can be autonomous. You can be self-reliant. You can be your own independent being who needs no one or nothing. But prayer, in many ways, is God's gift to us to rebuke and to resist, resist that lie, that hellish lie of self-autonomy. Listen to what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 4. He says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Again, what does James say? He says, pray about everything, right? Why? Because there is no time when you don't need more of God's grace. I mean, when could you not use more of God's grace? In what areas of your life could you not use more of God's grace? We don't pray because there's nothing more that we can do. We pray because there's nothing better we can do. One of my favorite characters in the Bible is Daniel. If you don't know much about Daniel, his story is in the Old Testament book of Daniel. So it should be easy to find. Just look up Daniel in the Old Testament. It's a great story. I love the story of Daniel, and I encourage you to go read it if you don't know much about him, or even if you have, to go review it. We don't have time to get into all the story of Daniel, but uh, there was a, a time in, in Daniel's life where he was, he was in a, a foreign land. He was in captivity, basically. 
And, and, and he was in this land, and when he was in this land, there was a, an edict, there was a, a law in place that you could not pray. He could not pray, but others could not pray to, to God, to the God of, of the Bible, Daniel's, Daniel's God. And do you remember Daniel's response? I, I love this. It's so simple, and yet it's so powerful. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, just one verse, says this. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, this decree that uh, this law that, that he could not pray to God. He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened, get that, windows are open, towards Jerusalem. And three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God. Listen to this next part. Just as he had always done before. Just as he had always done before. Daniel, he was an all the time pray guy. It wasn't that a crisis came up and so he saved his prayers for crisis. No, Daniel prayed all the time. He was laying laying every moment before the Lord. And James reminds us that people like Daniel and people like Elijah, they were just like us. They didn't make a difference because they had some special power or some special gift. They made a difference because they stayed and they prayed. They stayed faithful to God and they prayed and laid every moment of their lives before him. That's why James tells us to find the Daniels and the Elijahs around us and and pray, help them pray for us. He specifically mentions uh, calling on the elders to to pray over you. And and there's several reasons why. I mean, certainly there's there's healing and prayer and and James talks about that and, and that's a big part of it. And uh, it talks about uh, anointing with oil. We're not going to get into much of that today, but uh, that wasn't just for medicinal purposes, although it was for that, but also just for the Spirit's you know, presence to be there, God's presence to be there. But part of the reason why he says that calling the elders is because elders are just like us. They're, they're men, human beings, just like us. It's not like their position somehow makes them closer to God. No, we, we go to elders because these are men who are trying to stay close to God. You know, that, that, that's why they have that position. It's not like you become an elder and then suddenly, poof, you become a, a, you know, a person of prayer and a godly man. No, you were appointed to that position. You were, you were chosen for that position because you were a godly man and you were a, a person of prayer. And so James says, go to these men and, and let them help you. Have them pray for you. Learn from them. Now, listen. There is much to be done after we pray. And don't get me wrong, and we'll talk about that a little bit. There's much to be done after we pray. But in reality, we should really do nothing before we pray. Because prayer communicates so much more than we might realize. And so let me just share with you three things from this passage that I think this passage tells us about what prayer communicates. And the first is this, prayer communicates the value of community. Prayer communicates the value of community. Notice that James, and this is important, James just assumes that if you are a follower of Christ, then you're part of a local church. You're part of a church community. He just, he just assumes that. He doesn't say, you know, hey, you know, if you're in need, make sure you, you find a church near you, you know, so that, you know, when, when a crisis comes, you can go to them and, and, and you can have them, you know, pray over you in case you're sick or something's going on with you. No, he just assumes 
that, that you're part of a, a local church and you can easily go to some elders to, to come and, and pray over you and pray for you. He, he just assumes that community is, is one of your priorities, that you have a spiritual family that you can lean on, that you can count on. And, and here's why. I, I, I believe that each of us, each and every one of us needs to have our own private personal, individual prayer time with God. Each of us ought to find, we we need to find time each day, no matter how much it is, we need to find time each day to get alone with God and pray. But there are also times where you and I need help in getting to Jesus or in growing in Jesus. I'm reminded of the story in the Gospels Many of you probably remember it of the, the lame man who has these friends who, who bring him. They, they, they want to get him to Jesus so Jesus can heal him. And, and they can't get in. And so they're just trying to find a way. And so they end up lowering him through the roof. They, they tear a hole in the roof. Some guy's roof. Nobody ever talked about that. And we're not going to talk about it today. But they tear. this is the extent that they're going to. They tear a hole in the roof to lower this man to Jesus, to get him to Jesus. Sometimes you're just in a place in life where you need to get some help to get to Jesus, especially that's true when you're struggling with some sin. James says, let's just get real. I mean, James throughout the book says, let's get real, but, but here especially says, let's just get real. Let's, let's stop pretending. There are just some times in your life where you need to get with some brothers and sisters and confess your sins and ask them to pray for you. That's how healing happens, James says, is you invite some brothers and sisters. I mean, you need to have people in your life, but specifically when you're deep in sin, you need to have some brothers and sisters in your life that you can get together with and you can confess to them and have them pray for you, pray for you so you can get better and you can get stronger. It doesn't happen on its own. You need to have help in getting to Jesus and growing in Jesus. Disciples don't grow in the darkness. They grow in the light. And so you see prayer communicates the value of community. You know, perhaps the most well-known prayer in the Bible is the prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter six. We often call it the Lord's prayer, although technically it ought to be called the disciples prayer because it's the one that Jesus teaches us to pray. But Jesus starts off by saying, this then is how you should pray. This is how you should pray. And it's not not necessarily a word for word, but teaching us how to pray. But he does give us some some things to lean on. And then he goes on to say this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, as I read that, did you notice that all of the personal pronouns, and maybe it's easy to skip over this, but all of the personal pronouns in what we just read in the Lord's Prayer are all plural. Think about it. Our Father. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. They're all plural. And I think that's important. You know, you know Jesus' Jesus's disciples didn't ask him, Lord, teach us how to preach, or, or, or Lord, teach us how to witness, or Lord, teach us how to study the Bible. No, they asked Jesus, Lord, Teach us how to pray. 
because they saw it in his light. Lord, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus says, okay, here's how you should pray. Our Father. Not, not my Father. Our Father. Our daily bread. Our debts. Lead us. Deliver us. It's not just you. It's we. And our and us. Do you hear what Jesus is doing when he's teaching us to pray? Jesus is reminding us that no person is an only child in the family of God. No person is an only child in the family of God. And so when you talk to the father, you need to mention some of his other kids because we're all in this together. Prayer communicates the value of community. Listen to the Apostle Paul again, this time from Philippians chapter one. And remember, he's writing this from prison. He's in jail when he writes this. But he says, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Notice the spirit's working, okay? That is to be sure. The spirit of Jesus is providing God's provision. But it's not the spirit alone that gives Paul confidence. It's their prayers and the spirit that would bring his deliverance and his freedom. And I wonder how many people in our churches might be in bondage for this very reason. We're just not praying for each other. We're not lifting each other up before the Father. Maybe we have too much pride to admit our struggles to each other. Maybe we're, we're, we're too detached and we're not close enough in our relationships. Maybe we just, we, we have so much on our plate that we get too busy and, and we're just not around and we're just not involved in people's lives. Whatever the reason, we, we've got to do something about that. We are, we are all a kingdom of priests, the Bible says. We don't, we don't take that seriously enough. And that's a whole nother sermon, probably even a sermon series. But we are all a kingdom of priests. And the job of a priest is to intercede for someone else before God. That's what we're called to be. We are a kingdom of priests. But now remember, a kingdom has a king. And that leads to the second thing that prayer communicates, and it's this. Prayer communicates the certainty of God's sovereignty. Prayer communicates the certainty of God's sovereignty. Now, there is a prayer that does not work, kind of prayer that does not work when it comes to faith. I kind of alluded to this earlier when talking about how prayer is sometimes misused, misused, I should say. And, and this is the kind of prayer that, that basically is all about trying to get God to do what we want. That, that, you know, that it's all about, God, I need you to do what I want. That God is some kind of cosmic vending machine that I, you know, I push my prayer buttons, you know, E4, and, and out drops what I want out of the vending machine. But prayer's purpose is not to get God's will to surrender, or not to get God to surrender to my will. Some of you who are sports fans will probably recognize the name Fran Tarkington. Tarkington, uh, Tarkington was a great NFL quarterback back in the 60s and 70s, played for the Minnesota Vikings, uh, played in three Super Bowls, didn't win any of them, played in three Super Bowls, was an all-pro, uh, was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But several years ago, he wrote a, an article in the Wall Street Journal criticizing athletic prayers. Now, mind you, uh, Tarkington is a religious man, so he's not criticizing prayer, but he was criticizing uh, athletic prayers. Listen, listen to what he said. He said, I prayed hard before every Super Bowl that God would let us win. 
I prayed when we played the Dolphins and we lost. I prayed when we played the Steelers and we lost. I prayed even when we played the, the uh, Raiders and I knew God had to let us win that one because the Raiders are the villains, right? Everybody knows that, but we lost. And he said, then I began to think, before almost every game, the coach would get us all together and most of us were vulgar-tongued and lived immoral lives, drank way too much, things like that. But we'd always have a prayer. And we'd always pray for us to do well and there to be no injuries. And we'd say amen. And then we'd all say, now let's go out there and kill all those blankety blank blank blanks. And he was just reflecting on the sheer hypocrisy of thinking that prayer is a tool to bribe God to get what you want. You see, prayer is not about getting God to surrender to my will. Prayer is the deliberate act of surrendering my will to God. I mean, what did we just read a few moments ago in the Lord's Prayer? May your kingdom come and what you want to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the amazing thing, though. God, who is totally sovereign, often makes a sovereign choice to get what he wants done through the prayers of his children. Remember, again, Daniel and Elijah. God told the prophet Jeremiah, I want the captivity to last 70 years. Captivity that Daniel was part of. And, and after 70 years, Daniel starts praying. Why does he do that? God's already said, this is my will. This is what's going to happen. But Daniel understood that when the sovereign God announced his will, he still wants to partner with his children to pray for it to happen. Why did Elijah need to pray? God had already said there's going to be a famine. And then after that, God said, I'm going to send rain. So if God's already decided what he's going to do, why does Elijah need to pray? Because the sovereign God oftentimes makes, oftentimes makes the sovereign choice to partner with his children to accomplish his will through their prayers. And so we pray, God, do what you long to do. Your kingdom come. May what you want done happen. Now here's the thing. Sometimes we know exactly what God wants done. We don't have to wonder about it. We know exactly what God wants done. Like for instance, when it comes to freeing people from sin and darkness. I don't have to wonder if it's God's will that lost people get saved. Like I don't have to wonder that. I don't have to wonder if it's God's will that, that we are praying for and reaching out to the lost in our world and in our country and our communities and our families who are lost. We, we don't have to wonder if God wants them to be saved and come into a saving, saving relationship with him. Uh, we, we don't have to wonder if it's God's will that, that, that we, we make Jesus known to the people around us and to the world around us. Like We don't have to wonder that. That's not a great mystery. God, are you, I'm not so sure if you want me to tell people about no. He does, okay? We don't have to wonder about that. And so sometimes we know exactly what God wants done, especially when we're praying and reaching out to the lost. But then there are other times when, when we don't know exactly what God wants to do. And I think this is especially true when we're praying for those who are sick. You know, I've seen and heard some amazing healing stories and miracles in response to prayer. Just, I mean, like, no other explanation, right? And yet I've also preached some funerals for people who never got better. And, and it wasn't that we, we didn't have faith. It wasn't that we didn't pray hard for those people to get better. But they didn't. 
and we live with that tension, right? God still heals, but not everyone. And we know that God can show his grace over sickness, but we also know that God can show his grace in and through sickness. And I don't know why one and not the other. I can't answer that, but either way, the call for us is to pray and to submit ourselves to the will of God. I love what Christian author and speaker Tony Erickson Tata said. And at the age, just a little background on her. At the age of 18, Tata uh, suffered a cervical fracture that left her as a quadriplegic. And she talks about all the people that have prayed for her, prayed over her for her healing. But I love what she says. And this is, mind you, in spite of her not being physically healed. She's still a quadriplegic. But here's what she said. She says, I was healed when I embraced the will of God. It's a different kind of healing, but, but I was healed when I embraced the will of God. And so sometimes you know exactly what God wants, and sometimes you're not so sure. So what do you do when you're not so sure what God wants? Well, you pray, right? I mean, that's what you do. You pray. And when you're not so sure, you, you just, you go ahead and you ask God. You talk to him about it. You say, Lord, I, I'm, I, I'm not so sure what you want here. I, I, I do not know what you want here. And so I'm just going to talk to you humbly. I'm going to talk to you humbly about what I want. I'm just going to talk to you about what, what, what's going on in, in, in my heart and my mind. And I'll promise you this. God is not going to get confused, Okay your prayer is not going to paralyze or override the sovereignty of God. So when you're not sure what God wants, talk to him about it. Ask him, bring it before God. He invites us to bring every moment of our lives before him. But then you also ask him to want what he wants. You can talk to him about it, but then you also Ask him to want what he wants. And if, I mean, if we're just being real honest and I'm just laying everything out before you, I gotta be honest, there's times in my life where I haven't really wanted what he wants. And, and so there's sometimes that I've needed to pray and probably haven't prayed enough for it. God, help me to want to want what you want. Help me to want to want what you want. Help me to get there. And Jesus helps me here because Jesus practiced what he preached about prayer. And there were times like in the garden where Jesus wrestled with what God wanted. Look at John chapter 12. Jesus said, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That's a great prayer. That's a great prayer. When you don't know how to pray, and even, even when you do, but when you don't know what God wants, Father, glorify your name is a good place to start. That's a good place to start. And until... God speaks, you haven't heard the last word. That may be the first word for us 
Father, glorify your name. But until God speaks, you haven't heard the last word. Because, and this leads me to the last thing that prayer communicates. Prayer communicates the fallacy of impossibility. Prayer communicates the fallacy of impossibility. I came across something this week that I thought was, uh, was funny, made me chuckle, made me think a little bit. Uh, but it was some funny names and downright odd names, if we're just being honest. And in no way am I trying to be critical of this. I just, I guess it's hard kind of not to be, but I just, I thought they were um, just interesting. I don't know why they would name them, name these churches these names, but these are real names. These are real names. Some of them are, I, I know why, because it's the town that they lived in, like the first one I'm going to give you. But here, here's just a few. Uh, the Boring United Methodist Church. Nothing says fun and exciting like the boring United Methodist Church. It's boring somewhere, maybe like boring Missouri. I can't remember exactly where. Uh, another one was the Halfway Baptist Church. Not, not all the way. We're just halfway Baptist Church. Another one was the First United, get, listen closely, the First United Separated Baptist Church. Don't know how that works, but uh, another one was the, this is a long one, the First Church of the Last Chance World on Fire Revival and Military Academy, because, yes, I guess, I, I don't know. Uh, and then here's, here's a good one, the Run for Your Life International Chapel. I <laughs> thought that one was interesting. But aside from those, there was one that, that really caught my eye, the one I wanted to, to really share with you. Um, not because it was necessarily overly funny, but actually it was kind of sad the more I thought about it. But it was called the Little Hope Church. The Little Hope Church. And I'm just thinking, man, they may be some of the sweetest people on the face of the earth. And I'm not trying to talk bad about them again, but I just, like, why would you want to go to a church of little hope? Right? Why would you want to go to the church of, of little hope? And yet, I wonder if that doesn't describe the prayers of a lot of churches. Jesus said, when you start your prayer, start it this way. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. What's he doing? Jesus is teaching us that we're talking to a God and a Father who is not bound by earthly realities and limitations. It's what the psalmist says in Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. He does whatever pleases him. God is not bound or limited or held captive to any earthly reality. That means that the way things are does not mean that they have to stay that way. The resurrection of Jesus tells us that there is no stone that God cannot move. Nothing is impossible with our God. Nothing lies outside the reach of prayer except what lies outside the will of God. So ask. Ask. I mean, the reason we pray is because even though we were sinners, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, came and shed his blood and died for us. We needed a Savior, and by his death, we have gained access into the very throne room of God. You and I have access to the very throne room of God. It's because of Jesus' blood and the righteousness that he gave to us that we can even talk to God. And I don't want to squander 
the privilege of access to the throne of God through the blood of Jesus Christ with my puny little faithless prayers. So I ask, and ask big, not with little hope, but with big hope. I love one of the stories that Paul Harvey tells, great, great storyteller. Probably could let him tell you, but um, I'll go ahead and tell it. But the story goes that there was a little three-year-old boy who was at the grocery store with his mom, and before they went in, she kind of had a pep talk with him. Sometimes you have to do that with your, with your kids, especially those young boys. Uh, but she had a little pep talk with him. She said, okay, listen, we've got to go in to the store, get a few things, just a few things. We're not going to be in there long. You are not getting any chocolate chip cookies today, okay? We're not getting any chocolate chip cookies, so don't even ask. And so he nodded, was semi on board with the, with the plan. So they went inside, and, and she put him in the cart, and they're going down the aisles. And pretty soon it came time that she had, she had something that she had to grab on the aisle that had the cookies, right? And so she starts down the aisle, and his eyes just I mean, his eyes light up when he starts to see the cookies. He was doing fine until that point, and then he saw the cookies, and then he just he couldn't help himself when he saw those chocolate chip cookies. He said, Mom, can we have some chocolate chip cookies? Can we get some chocolate chip cookies? She said, don't, don't start with that. I, I told you that we are not getting chocolate chip cookies today. I told you not even to ask. We are not getting any, and that's that. So the little boy kind of resigned himself for the moment. She went down another aisle, but he just could not help himself. He was not going to stop. And so he said, Mom, please, can we go back and get some chocolate chip cookies? And she said, just stop. I told you we are not getting chocolate chip cookies today. Well, pretty soon Mom finished her shopping and she made her way to the checkout line and just before they're about to get in the checkout line, the little boy sensing that this is his last chance and he is not going to give up. And so he stood, he went to stand up, stood up in the grocery cart and he said as loud as he could, in the name of Jesus, could we get some chocolate chip cookies? Well, evidently the people who heard him were either convinced or convicted or amused or maybe a little bit of both because that young mother went back to her car with 23 boxes of chocolate chip cookies. Listen to me. I don't want us to learn in heaven of what could have been on earth if only we had asked heaven for it. Paul says God can do so much more, immeasurably more, than anything we could ever ask or even imagine. You know why? Because you see, throughout this series, we've been talking about how, what does it look like for faith that works? We've been talking about faith that works, but you know, ultimately what prayer says, what prayer communicates is that God works. God works. He's not inactive and, uninvolved, but that he works, he moves, he acts. And isn't that the story? Isn't that the message of the cross? That God works? God gave, God loved, God sent, 
Jesus offered, Jesus bled, Jesus died, that we can be saved because our God works. When it comes to salvation, all the working is done by God. And through prayer, not only do we affirm that reality, but it's through prayer and our submission to him that we actually partner with him in his work. Not only in us, but also through us and into the world around us. So that ultimately, his will may be done on earth as it is in heaven.